From the home of creative writing on the Internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. Street, it's eight o'clock. At a recent dinner party, I saw it was eight o'clock. And it's also eight o'clock in Pentonville Prison, London. No, not a coincidence. It's Latopia After Dark's Information Buffet. So, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, and welcome to Latopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. This evening, we're offering a smorgasbord of tasty morsels of news, canapes of fact, and appetizers of opinion. Heading up tonight's menu is the perpetually fraught question of dinner parties and their vital role in the book business. Some would even say that's really what the entire publishing business is actually all about. So, can you contemplate success in publishing without buttering up the right parsnips? Next on the bill of fare is this question. How distant does a historical event have to be before it can be accurately judged? We're going all the way back to the 1960s to examine this subject. And chiclet. It's one of the biggest commercial genres out there, but is it the stuff of modern classics or simply formulaic populist old pablum? And finally, we wallow John Prescott-like in a full-fat, high-fructose TV dinner as we contemplate the distinct possibility that the tele- that television has just been, new word coming up, dinosaured by new media. So the big question we're asking this week is, and you need to help me here, how far can we extend the food metaphor? I'll be awarding a prize to the panellists who most overextends, not to say overags, their food metaphors this evening. And here to help me nibble the news are, from England's West Country, writer and lecturer Dave Bartram, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, writer and lawyer Donna Borman, and from Suffolk, that's just underneath Norfolk, in the UK, writer and biographer Carolyn Sutar, from London, England, writer and ARG master Richard Howes. Richard, is there a polite way to regurgitate your food at a dinner party? I've personally never found one. The, the only way to do this is to have a napkin in one hand and a glass of wine in the other. Um, you literally spill your glass of wine on somebody's shoes while everyone's looking down. You spit it into the napkin. Oh, End of problem. That wonderful etiquette tip, you know. Thank you so much. Carolyn, you've thrown more dinner parties than I've had um, hot dinners. Uh, what's the secret of your success? Well, probably everybody should first understand that you've only ever eaten salads. <laughs> so I go into the list of my dinner parties. And the, uh, I want to say, hasten to add that the rumours of my uh, brontosaurus steaks vastly, vastly overjudged. And I hate dinner parties because you always get invited back to somebody else's and it's terrible. Oh, yeah. the food, they can't cook. Oh, I know, I feel the same too. As, as I'm speaking terrible. as a salad eater. Dave, isn't the West Country all cheese and cream? Um, it's funny you should say that, actually, because we were just talking about uh, there's a, a rare Cornish delicacy called, uh, well, it's called in, in Brittany, it's called the fromage de mer, and it's it's a kind of shellfish and it's harvested, and, and here the Cornish call it a cheese fish. Oh. Which yeah, is dear. quite interesting. That's as bad as head um, cheese, isn't it? You know what head cheese is, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> I should think. Yeah, but we do have a we have a local cheese called Yarg, which is wrapped in <laughs> leaves, which is very nice. Um, but yeah, no, I wonder what the smell was. That explains everything. <laughs> Yarg. Oh, Yarg. Donna, have you ever overextended a food metaphor? Well, that's kind of a nutty question, but maybe we can have a fruitful discussion about it later. Uh, uh, two points already. Can two add points. spice to our writing, but if you want to bring home the bacon with your writing, You'd best not overdo them. What an astonishing start there from Donna Bournemouth, racing to the lead. But but has she she gone too fast too soon? We don't know. We'll find out. For our cerebral hors d'oeuvre tonight, we first examine the full and ghastly horror of that quintessentially middle-class ritual, the dinner party. Actually, there is evidence that while men may not much like them, women 
tend to. Writing in Slate Online, Mark Gimain demonstrates how game theory explains why available appealing men rarely seem to go to dinner parties. It's a truth universally acknowledged, he says, that the available, sociable and genuinely attractive man is a character highly in demand in social settings. Dinner hosts are always looking for the man who fits all the criteria. When they don't find him, often... They throw up their hands and settle for the sociable but unattractive, the attractive but unsociable, and as a last resort for the merely available. He goes on to say, uh, the problem of the eligible bachelor is one of the great riddles of social life. Uh, shouldn't there be about as many highly eligible and appealing men as there are attractive eligible women? And actually, he says no, and here's why. Consider the classic version of the marriage proposal. A woman makes it known that she is open to a proposal. The man proposes, and the woman chooses to say yes or no. The structure the proposal is not I choose you, it is will you choose me? So a woman chooses to receive the question and chooses again once the question is asked. And he goes on to, to explain um, with reference to game theory, and it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. With, with a lot at stake, he says, and getting it right in one shot, it's the women who are confident that they're holding a strong hand who are likely to hold out and wait for the perfect prospect. Um, he says the pool of appealing men shrinks as many are married off and taken out of the game, leaving a disproportionate number of men who are notably imperfect. Where have all the most appealing men gone, he asks. Married young, most of them. And sometimes to women whose most salient characteristic was not their beauty or passion or intellect, but their decisiveness. Mm. So getting back to the... Uh unalloyed horror of the dinner party, at least in, in my opinion. I mean, Karen, you, you said earlier that uh, dinner parties hold no attraction for you. Surely this is, this is not the case. The last time I held one, um, everybody, it was quite pleasant. Everybody was uh, very charming. And we didn't achieve anything. So I wondered why I'd done it. I asked myself too many, you know, too, all the usual questions. God, it costs a lot of money. Yeah. I myself to death in the kitchen for eight hours. Everybody got drunk and went home. I shoved everything in the dishwasher and I wondered what I'd achieved. Yeah. So I think I'm being very cynical. I've been to some stunning ones, especially some friends who held one on New Year's Eve. And what a wonderful way that was to see in the new year with just good friends around a table. Um, yeah, so I'm not really, I don't find them appealing because normally the cooking's dreadful. Well, yeah, couldn't agree more, actually. Uh, Dave, uh, Don has got five points already. I think you're going to have to uh, push a few food metaphors here quickly. <laughs> yeah, I am, actually, yes. Uh, I'm going to have to really get my teeth into this one and see if one I can point. produce something indigestible. Two so points, yeah. Uh, masticate well. over. Three points. Um, yeah, dinner parties, oh, the best ones, worst ones. I remember I went to one once run by a, a retired jockey. <laughs> Um, it was kind of I could see there's true. a joke coming up here. <laughs> no, he was a retired jockey who made pasties for a living. True. And his, his wife looked like um, Aladdin Sane era uh, David Bowie, uh, which was quite scary with the makeup. Uh, and um, he considered himself a, a mean cook. Uh, and it was quite interesting because he served up a paella with huge tiger prawns on it. And uh, I took one bite of one, turned green, and had to leg it for the toilet. <laughs> it, it, we weren't invited back. <laughs> that was, doesn't even count as a regurgitation, does it? No, it wasn't. It was projectile yeah. more than anything else. Grief. Richard, beat that. He's gone. <laughs> <laughs> he's gone. He's been invited to the dinner party. He, he gave up. You've touched a room. No, he's gone. Obviously. He's, he's obviously gone. He's had a bad experience at a dinner party and you've finished him. He's ringing his therapist. Even now. He's worrying whether he's the attractive but unavailable or the unattractive and he's able. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Richard. Hello. <laughs> uh, can we inquire what happened just then? Are you then? talking about me? <laughs> yes, we, but you bet we were. <laughs> I don't know how, how much of uh, Dave's anecdote you got, but um, you've got, you have yet to, to score on the uh, food metaphor rank, so now is your, your opportunity. Brilliant. Oh, uh, uh, let me chew on it for a moment. Good. Uh, no, none spring, spring to my... Dinner party I find anecdotes. that hard to swallow. Dinner parties, four or more again them. Oh, I'm 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 all for them. Unfortunately, it doesn't take me out out to them anymore because of my appalling manners. I seem to think that dinner parties are all about the food, 
and apparently they're not. I don't think they're. They're about mortgages. <laughs> On the ones I've ever been to, people start by talking about the size of their mortgage, and it gets more competitive after that. It's awful. Maybe I'm just making the wrong circles, Donna. Well, uh, right now I usually only do kitty ones, but I do go to a lot of uh, charity and political dinners. So um, my friends tend to gather with us at those. Mm. I usually like dinner parties. Um, I don't really have any horror stories. I guess my closest thing to a horror story is a, a charity dinner that we went to a couple of years ago where they had unlimited champagne, and, and I found my husband was the winning bidder on the um, car auction after a lot of champagne. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I don't really have any dinner party horror stories. Hmm. I watched somebody walk into a room with uh, the most amazing leg of lamb. It looked beautiful, and she presented it, and she immediately dropped it on the floor. It slipped <laughs> off and went bang. <laughs> In front of eight people. Well, she was in a total panic. Her husband thought, you know, this was the the crisis of the year, for heaven's sakes, for for them. And we were, of course, just all in hysterics. And whilst there was a lot of... Oh, don't. It was terrible. I felt so embarrassed for her. I know one one agent in London here who has made an extremely good living out of being invited essentially to dinner parties and putting himself around to the extent that when anybody ever thinks of an agent, they, they tend to think of him first. Um, but that's really the only example I can think of of dinner parties profiting one's business. I mean, or maybe I'm just getting it wrong. Uh, has anybody found dinner parties to be profitable enterprises? No. Well, I've met... No. Was that a yes or a no? <laughs> I think it was a, a definite maybe, but this could be a uh, red herring. But um, oh, oh, but don't I let did, it go off the boil, whatever you do. I won't, I won't, because I'd hate to have egg on my face about this one. But uh, I mean, I've never really seen myself as an hors d'oeuvre, but I keep getting introduced to these married men who just happen to be there at dinner parties by themselves. <laughs> and I can't really think why. Presumably their wives really? are very decisive and threw them out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, probably. As long so as they're not, maybe you like a marinade. That's <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Little... The, the number of bands that have got food names like bread, marmalade, jam. There's a whole breakfast yeah. thing going on in music alone. It's, it's very odd. Yeah, toast. Oh, no, that's toast? what ends up that, to them, that... isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, was end by, up um, toast. that was a song by. Um, oh, I can't remember who it is now. <laughs> little bit of toast. I feel an Amy Winehouse gag coming on, but I'll, I'll refrain. Are you, are we going to do that in a minute? Don't worry. All right, at the end of the first course, the score approximately is um, Donna has five food metaphors. Dave suddenly raced into the lead there with six. Amazing spurt right at the end. Richard, I, I think hovering about uh, one, he had to, to leave for a few minutes. And Carolyn, accreditable too. Um, oh, I'm the Alan Davis of Lytopia, am I? What, you mean you're going to work out how we did it at the end? <laughs> no, you, you watch Alan Davis always has no points. He always has no minus point. points, doesn't he? No, you've definitely got one point. Definitely got one point. And there's plenty of time. Um, and that was turning up for the dinner party. Exactly. Moving on to, to our next course. Um, Don't trifle with it, though. That was, an, uh, that, was, that was an intercourse food metaphor. It doesn't count, Dave. Oh, it's <laughs> oh. <laughs> trifle and intercourse, please. I think that was a banana skin waiting to happen. Just got the explicit tag again. Um, Gerard J. De Groot is, in, is the author of The Sixes Unplugged, a kaleidoscopic history of a disorderly decade, uh, published by Harvard University Press. And Jay Perini, who himself is a professor of English, reviews it in the Chronicle for Higher Education. And he says, whenever it comes to the era known as the 60s, I go wobbly in the knees. Perspective disappears and reason evaporates. For me, this tumultuous decade, which in spirit runs from about 1960, with the election of John F. Kennedy, through to the end of the Vietnam War in 1975, has a charm and promise all of its own, which I associate with a feeling of freedom from old pieties and a sense of fresh possibilities. But we know, he says, what happened in the aftermath of the 60s. Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush are only the tip of the political and cultural iceberg floating in very cold waters. The 60s has become anathema to many for all sorts of reasons and reactions to the liberalism of the decade set in. And he goes on in um, a very measured review to say, De Groot whirls through the era with a kind of manic energy. De Groot, incidentally, is a professor in Scotland, um, as indicated by his subtitle, De Groot's subtitle. He offers... 
glimpses of key moments. The protests of Mario Savio and the free speech movement at the University of California, Berkeley, the Bay of Pigs invasion, the founding of Students for a Democratic Society, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington, the music of Bob Dylan, the Beatles, Joan Baez, the activities of Malcolm X, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, Selma, Woodstock, the Tet Offensive, the Gay Revolt in Greenwich Village, known as Stonewall, the shootings of students in Mexico City and Kent State. Protest marches at home and abroad, especially, of course, Paris and uh, Grosvenor Square here in London. The riots in Chicago, the moon landing, the violence of the weathermen, and so forth. I felt a little dizzy at the end, he says, as if I'd been spun on some crazy merry-go-round. I'm not sure you can write a book that way, or that if you do, it adds up to much more than a big headache for the reader. Well, what do the 60s measure up to as far as we're concerned? Um, Karen, big headache or big opportunity for everybody? Big opportunity. Um, they, on a, on a serious note, after the war and after the 50s, uh, it was really, we've never had it so good. And I think writing about it, um, it's terribly easy just to go down the uh, LSD route, the, uh, you know, the very obvious psychedelic, good heavens, wasn't everything horrendous. But it, the opportunities were huge. And when you think of the moon landing, if it happened, but I'm not a cynic about that. I mean, you know, we know it's made a cream cheese, so it's fine. But I, um, I think it's a huge opportunity, but I don't think talking about it spinning and whirling is, is the right way to do it because it was economic, it was uh, cultural, um, and the culture covered so many aspects of it. Yeah. A big opportunity. But I can't, interestingly, from my, I mean, I wasn't, what was I? I was 10 in 1963. Yeah. So the Beatles in 68 were when I sort of started paying a lot of attention when I was 15, 16. Don't remember any of the literature other than Love Story later. Because I was doing all the literature at school, but I would be very, very hard pushed to say, gosh, I went out and bought that book. Hmm. But music, yeah, sure, everything I've got from that era. Well, to pick up the crumbs from that... Um... <laughs> Uh, yeah. I noticed it, don't worry, I noticed. You know, you can't really it's have cake your bowl. Yeah, you can't really have your cake and eat it with this sort of stuff. I mean, I, I, was, I was six at the end of the 60s, so my 60s were mostly about, you know, wearing short trousers and sweets and... Um, the oh. <laughs> that was obviously too rude. Well, we just I got a short, short trousers and sweets. I mean, we, you know, you can, you can assess the sixes without having actually experienced them. I mean, the, the, the mm. ecology, yeah, food, I, all these things. But I think, I think in yeah, some ways... I really enjoyed the, the music. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I suppose the, the books certainly have, have their place, like uh, Ursula Le Guin and uh, Philip K. Dick. They, you know, they still have a, a, a great hold on, uh, uh, on, on you know, the general reading public. Certainly, I've, I've come across a lot, a lot of them recently that, that I'm now starting to read. Uh, so, you so know, for you, you really Richard, I mean, a, you're, you're nothing, you know, close to a child of the 60s, but, but for you, I mean, what effect would you say, if, if any, in fact, any lasting effect, the, that particular decade that does hold a unique place in many people's hearts, what, what effect has that had, do you think, generally speaking, popular culture? Considering that everyone that was with the uh, Flower Power generation um, is now the... Uh, Careful. <laughs> careful. Be very, very careful. Sorry, I, I had to sideline what I was going to say there. Um, but, but you have all sold out, haven't you? You know, you, you were you were all like, yay, for McDonald's, and, and now, you, now you're all at dinner parties. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. just, yeah but they're know, not takeout dinner parties, are they? <laughs> yeah, but it no, completely don't, don't. undoes the, uh, the, the hard work that, that you all spent doing during the 60s, isn't it? You know, fight the power, and now you are the power. Of, um, the most very lasting true. remnant of the 60s right now is the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. We have that um, going on in our election right now, a great example of how that's finally come to fruition. Um, it, it certainly influenced me, although I, I think this is just a, a trick to figure out which zero-ending birthday I have next year. But um, <laughs> Or are you saying there's no kernel of truth to that? Um, <laughs> um, the the effect that uh, the those things had on me, especially, um, in, I remember in elementary school talking about the um, assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, and um, I think those influenced me, and it's probably why I do discrimination law now. Hmm. 
So, lasting effect for you? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, it's hard to not have been impacted by that. Um, we, we lived in an area where there were some race riots. Um, I remember seeing um, a school on fire um, during one of the riots that were, were nearby, and um, I think it did have a lasting effect on me and my attitudes toward life. I guess uh, my age, we all uh, take it for granted everything that, that's come before, and, and certainly what it's it's led to in in our lives. You know, certainly when we consider that um, black people have you know the the, the similar, you know, I won't say that they have the same kind of standing that the majority of white people have these days, because there's there's still that kind of unhinging, unsettled element there that prevents them to just you know stand up and be who they are mm. uh, and and this the same same with uh women and 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 just the, the general free speech of, of where we are at the moment in in the west in particular um so yeah it, it certainly it's it's easy for us just to forget where we've come from and and, and how it's not really that far away you you, you assume you know I, i'm only 29 uh and and, and you begin to assume that We've had all all that we are at the moment for so long, and and it's it's only what thirty forty years. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, I think you were right to to raise earlier before you uh, before Dave popped off. Actually, that, you know, one of the interesting effects I I I think from the sixties is is people who had prominence then to see what sort of uh, personal journey they've come on. And of course, these names have not particularly been known outside of the UK. But you think about Jack Straw, for example, who was a real firebrand of a radical. Peter Hain, of course, stopped the sixties tour. And look at them now, you know, they're pillars of the establishment. Quite an amazing journey, really. Um, Dave? They had their cake and they ate it. They did. Oh, good. Two, two, yes. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yes. I, I was just thinking that the real impact of the 60s, beyond the music and all this, bearing in mind most of the music of the 60s was the mainstream kind of uh, easy listening, wasn't it? It was. Really? Um, and it, it's the fringe stuff that we remember. Yeah. Um, the real impact of the sixties was the the way the kind of the way the ideals crashed and burned, turned the seventies into an incredibly cynical and depressed decade. Mm. You know, the impact of the of the you know the the white heat of technology never happened. We never went to live on Mars, and all of these other things that were. Were, were vaunted as great ideals in the 60s didn't really happen you know you know there was Woodstock and then there was Altamont and uh, that kind of typified it quite well and it turned the 70s into a very disillusioned decade and mm. in a sense that was what paved the, the the way for the excess of the 80s and that was when all the real white heat of technology was with the internet and mobile phones and, well, we, and we went through multinationals the, um... and things did, did the uh, 60s deflate the souffle? <laughs> I, th- I think they, they, they overblew it and the 70s stuck a pin in it, really. No, they turned the oven out in the 70s because we had the uh, power strike. I mean, yes, I, I, went for, yeah. I went for uh, interviews for college in 69. Uh, it was 70, 71, I can't remember now. We were told to take candles with us because there was no lighting. And if you could imagine walk, yes. walking down Oxford Street... And taking candles yeah. with you into stores because there wasn't any. Yeah. And you know the oh. miners' strike and all those riots. It was horrendous. It was a complete reversal of fortune yeah. for what we ju- we just enjoyed in the sixties. Very strange. Carastra says souffle. There's a dish that's lost its cachet. It has too, hasn't it? It's yeah. rather rather like um, yes, it fondue. I, I, dinner parties for me used to be about fondue and trying to well, look, extract <laughs> large lumps of congealing cheese from your innards. As, um, Yard. Oh, yeah. did you see um, some poor, <laughs> some poor dinner say, party? Really? Yarg. Yarg. There was some poor dinner party which uh, had a, a hole in its roof because the uh, fondue gas cylinder blew up. <laughs> <laughs> and it all got to third degree burn. Stop it. Oh, no. <laughs> they got covered in cheese. <laughs> dear, dear, dear. Terrible thing. Yeah, they it have that. When, when a liquid cheese well blows down here, it can be quite nasty. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they have tin, isn't it? Tin Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I thought so. Yeah, yeah. The tin was just a cover. It, it's all <laughs> cheese and cream under there, and they pump it out through a pipeline that's about to be shut down through an industrial strike of the milkers and tappers. <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be there's going to be a dearth of clotted cream, and the country will grind to a halt. Seems fishy to me. Oh, 
<laughs> it's very, very... Okay, end of that round. Um, I'm going to give Don a nine. Dave is into d- double digits now, ten. Richard is um, pressing four. And, and Carolyn kind of lost count, actually, but I'd, let's let's say about seven or eight. And, eight. and, and I must generous. say that I... The 60s, I wasn't even a bun in the oven at that point. Five. It wasn't even a, a winkle in somebody's eye or a little cockle or... Ten. Shrimp on the horizon. Well, with that kind of technique, they'd have never have had a baby, would they? <laughs> <laughs> winkle in the eye. It's all different, then. It's all different. You don't know. It wasn't that different. I think we were a different... <laughs> We went a different species. I'm going to have to put the explicit tag on this. Um, here we go. Oh, I'd never go to one of your dinner parties, I tell you. <laughs> don't think what goes on. If there's fish right, in the menu, I'm running. <laughs> it's it served after the brontosaurus steak. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and the exploding fondue. Gas canister. Give everybody ten points. I think that's the safest thing. Ten points. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, now it lives like QI. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Carolyn just mentioned Amy Winehouse. She's in the news this week. Amy Winehouse and her husband, oh, dog, yes. Blake Fielder Civil, have been offered a massive £1 million, pounds, about $2 million, to write a book about their troubled marriage, according to reports. The singer and her 26-year-old husband, who's currently on remand in London's Pentonville Jail, for an alleged assault last year, as well as perverting the course of justice, had been offered the deal by Penguin Books. And Winehouse has reportedly met with the publisher after her husband agreed to the deal. Um, one recent poll found that the 24-year-old is the, quote, the ultimate heroine for Britain's young people. And she's just been nominated for three Ivan Novello Awards. Yet perhaps more comforting to Amy Winehouse is the fact that she's really rather rich. Uh, she makes her debut in this year's Sunday Times Young Music Millionaires list, entering at number 10 in the list of the top 100 richest people in, in music in Britain, aged 13 under. Her estimated fortune is £10 million, $20 million. And just this week, the Independent reported the police are expected to question Ms Winehouse about an alleged attack on a 38-year-old man in North London at 3am on Wednesday. The man has told police that he was headbutted by a woman outside the Bartok Bar in Camden. And as you probably know, if you... <laughs> yeah, there is a funny side to this. Um, as you probably, if you haven't heard of Amy Winehouse, I mean, she suffers from self-harm, depression, eating disorders. The British tabloid The Sun posted a video of a woman alleged to be Winehouse, apparently smoking crack cocaine and speaking of having taken ecstasy and Valium. Uh, Winehouse's father moved in with her, says Wikipedia and Island Records. Her record label announced their plans to abandon its American promotion campaign of her. Um, so, um, oh yes, also the executive director of the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime said that the alleged drug habits of Winehouse and other celebrities sends a bad message, quote, to others who are vulnerable to addiction and undermines the efforts of other celebrities trying to raise awareness of problems in Africa. Now that more cocaine, he says, used in Europe passes through Africa, Winehouse's spokesman called Costa, that's uh, the uh, UN uh, spokesman, a ludicrous man. So with a million pound two million dollar book deal apparently in the offing from penguin who of course invented the paperback and popularized uh, and made their name and their fortune of popularizing rather higher brow books than this what do we all think of this richard i'm i'm tired of, of getting angry about all this sort of stuff <laughs> it just keeps going on and on doesn't it yeah it does another celebrity gives them another book gives mm. them all the money everyone will read it what do you think they will? Do you think anyone's going to... I mean, haven't you already been overexposed to her, Amy Winehouse and her disaster of a life? I have, yeah. Well, you know, I was out on the street and she headbutts me. It's crazy. <laughs> was crazy. I, I guess I'm, I'm lucky that she, she didn't crush my nuts. <laughs> Pilot Dude says, I think I need to change my approach to getting a book deal. Horses <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> behaving badly. Awful. Sends out totally the wrong messages. Um, I'm allergic to her beehive anyway. Um, you know, her music is amazing. Some of her songs are incredible. But to get a million-pound book deal, can they remember what happened? Mm. Does anybody care? Well, I'm more interested in their music. I don't want to see somebody destroy herself. Yeah. I've really had enough of reading about her, and pardon me for swearing, Britney Spears. I'm, you know, I really don't want to see any of these people just destroy themselves. It's just... 
you know, she had a very old-fashioned expression. It's God-given talent mm-hmm. or somebody's given talent that is just being chucked away. And I don't need to read about it. And I'm, I'm appalled that Penguin have given her that deal. Well, allegedly. We have, we have to say allegedly. I mean, it's, it's not certain. Allegedly, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, allegedly, if they've given them a tenner, it's too much. Car crash, uh, car crash publishing. Yeah, I think it is. I think people love to what wallow in other people's misery and misfortune, don't they? Or their excesses and, and so forth. It's all about the fact that I'll find somebody with a more interesting life than mine and I'll watch them crash and burn. I think uh, yeah. the British being the British, you know, let's look at somebody really successful and enjoy the fact that... Um, that their lives seem to be dropping to bits. Mm. You know, it kind of justifies the fact that maybe wealth isn't always um, equitably distributed and, and the deserving don't always get what they want. It's a very kind of nasty undertone to this kind of thing, I think, personally. Yeah. Um, and particularly I, so in, a, in a, a recession, Dave, don't you think? That while everyone's getting gloomier and gloomier, it's quite good. There's a bit of schadenfreude watching somebody who now has so much money just destroy herself. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's all about that. Let's cheer ourselves up a bit more uh, by actually ensuring that some, just confirming that somebody else is having a worse time than we are. And I, I, th- I think it, it, it's, it, it belittles kind of being a human being, actually. I, I, and she I, doesn't stand a chance, it. does she? She doesn't stand a chance with all the paparazzi chasing her around, waiting for her to go out in a bra and jeans and waiting outside her flat. Did you just call them the paparazzi? (laughs) Bonus point. (laughs) Bonus point for Richard. That was very good. I, I don't get why people would buy a book about somebody who's just about one fry short of a Happy Meal, um, a couple patties short of a Whopper. Or even a couple fruits short of a loop. short of a picnic. Exactly. Um, it, it's watching somebody crash and burn like that is not pleasurable mm. to me. I, it's I feel real bad for um, Britney Spears too. Um, they're they're going through something horrible, and we're mm. literally watching them die. She has a lot um, of book deal. I, I don't, Britney Spears has. I mean, Americans are a little more intelligent than this, aren't they? The British seem to have an extraordinary... Her mom had a book deal on child-rearing, for heaven's sakes, and it took the pregnancy (laughs) of her underage sister to can that book deal. It was horrible. Uh, It was was an astounding lack of judgment on somebody's part to sign that, that mother... Um, but but why I just don't get it, it's it's literally watching somebody kill themselves mm. and and it's horrible and I don't know is it like watching a, a car wreck a train wreck um, I, I don't get why anyone would buy the book or do anything but put somebody like that in a serious mental health facility. Pilot dude says people do buy some strange books like old Wayne Rooney's latest. I've nearly finished covering it in. <laughs> 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 Like she bought up some horses. What was that? The regurgitation at the dinner party. This is your ex jockey, is it? (laughs) Kate Monaghan, writing in the Waikato Times this week, poses the question that answers it: uh, Why women want chiclet? Chiclet author, she says. Jill Mansell is how you imagine a romance writer to look, dressed in pink. With a crystal heart-shaped pendant at her neck, the UK mother of two is warm and witty and quick to laugh. She leans forward in her chair at a Hamilton, New Zealand cafe and whispers conspiratorially, Chiclet is like chocolate. It's lovely. Mansell is adored by women around the globe for her funny feminine fiction, writes Kate. She has published 19 titles and sold more than 3 million books worldwide. Last week, she was on a whirlwind tour of the country, that's New Zealand, with her publisher, Hachette, promoting her latest book, an offer you can't refuse. By any measure, says Kate, Mansell is a raging success in the, in the literary world. Fans on blogs and sites such as Amazon.com gush about her novels, full of feisty women going through family dramas and life issues, from unwanted pregnancy to adultery to getting older. Yet some critics would call the genre lightweight at best and romantic mind-rotting claptrap at worst. What would you call it, Richard? Uh, rubbish. Um, <laughs> you say that they're, they're gushing, isn't that just the menopause? Um, oh. No, my, my, my wife reads a, a fair amount of uh, romance claptrap. Um, 
Whoops, she's giving me evils. Don't give me evils, darling. Um, we, uh, we, we went to, to see a, a couple of uh, library events. We had uh, Freya North and Adele Parks come to the library to give a talk on their books. Uh, Adele Parks in particular um, talked about how well she does over in um, Yugoslavia. Mm. Uh, Doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> She's talk, clearly talking rubbish. <laughs> yes, but all the uh, all those distended uh, states, um, and and how well she she does out there, and and uh, because of all the trouble that they've had over the decades, uh, they are looking for literally the ah. happy-go-lucky romance. Yeah, you know the the chiclet that that has no violence and. Uh, and <laughs> the backstabbing with real knives, you know, and, and yeah, she she seemed to be doing very well, particularly out there, that they're just literally looking for the upbeat stories. Jane Jane McLean is the um, marketing uh, person for Hachette in New Zealand, and she says, uh, rather than peaking and puttering out, the genre has adapted. Because uh, you could probably say it started big time, really, around about the time of Bridget Jones, I suppose, um, spawning all sorts of sub-genres. It started says Jane with pure romance then moved into chick lit or bimbo glitz and now has got more story behind it more brunette she says if you will she says characters are more complex plot lines are more multifaceted and the diversification is appealing to a wider group of readers there is she says lad lit yummy mummy lit for 30 something mums hen lit for older women in their 40s or 50s there is teen chick lit such as it girl or gossip girl and that's huge says McLean uh, there's also vampire chick lit mystical chick lit and even subtle differences by country. Indian chiclet has less sex and more modesty in their stories. Says McLean, personally, I find English chiclet chiclet has more of a sense of humour. And US chiclet is more racy. Scandinavian chiclet is darker with more mystery and darker subjects such as murder woven in. So, Donna, what is it that you women find so desperately attractive about this? Uh, I find it pretty corny, cheesy, and saccharine. Um, I tend to like something a little more beefy. Um, I'm not really interested that much in, in chiclet. Uh, I'd rather read a good Stephen King myself, but in college I did read The Women's Room. I don't know if that counts as chiclet, um, but I read it because it takes place at Wellesley, which is where I went, and I read Fear of Flying mainly because it was, you know, just kind of racy and something I'd heard about. Um, I do want to read the Twilight series, which is Teen Vampire Chiclet, which mm, sounds like kind of interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't really get the the appeal of the genre, but, um, I, you know, it's light and, and it's happy, and um, uh, usually the, uh, the woman prevails at the end and gets what she wants. And well, it's all I about think being that's the appeal. Layers, isn't it? Romance is like an onion. <laughs> uh, that's. Go on, finish the metaphor. Romance is like an onion. It makes you cry, but uh, now you're minus one point for that. No, you wouldn't want to eat it. No, you wouldn't want to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> there is a formula of sorts with books following the ups and downs of a hip female 20 or 30 something protagonist says Kate living in a big city as she deals with crises in her love and work life often in the fashion PR or media world you can probably think of um, uh, that Prada book and film recently The Devil Wears Prada there's often a search for Mr. Wright and a struggle towards empowerment or self-realisation they always have a happy ending says McCollum there is a, an element of fantasy about them the ugly duckling gets a makeover and a spring in a step and suddenly everything's different and her hair always looks amazing that kind of stuff doesn't happen she says in real life is this harmless fantasy uh, Carolyn or is it rather sinister and exploitative um now that ask me something easy, why don't you? God, that's that's hard. You see, I I do believe there'll always be a market for this because we, you know, this recession that's going to be with us for three years is global. Um, if you're writing at the moment, perhaps you should be writing chiclet mm. because it's going to sell. Um, it will. There will always feel good fiction. Feel good fiction, absolutely. But um, uh, women are fantasists. Yeah, apparently, yeah, it's, their, it's their meat and two veg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, two and uh, <laughs> no wonder Dave's just dropped. 
<laughs> that was his Cornish pasty going. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think it's uh, you, if you're if you're stuck at home, you're a, a one-parent family. What on earth are you going to do? You watch daytime television, or do you have at your fingertips some fantastic book where you can really get involved with uh, the heroine and think I could do that? Because as Peter says, it's feel-good fiction. I think it's very important, and yes, it's manipulative, and yes, somebody's going to make money, but then it happens everywhere. The guys are too chicken to chime in. Well, I'm not. Oh, I'm trying to think time. about whether somebody was passing around the olives at that moment or not, and I just stopped at the wrong minute. Do you read, Donna? Do you read? I mean, you've just said you don't read chick lit. I've just read. Uh, what did I just read? That uh, will be down. Uh, the Blind Assassin by uh, Margaret Atwood. Hardly chick lit. A serious book, but I, in the end, I felt very manipulated, very as if I'd read a, a female-orientated book that I could never pass to a bloke and say you'll enjoy that. Um, it's not so much feel-good as good-feel literature, from what I've read of it. Um, it it's um, it's all very jolly, isn't it? It's kind of um, I love all the subgenre. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I think I'll turn my current um, my current pot boiler um, in, into chiclet. I could see it working. You know, it murder mayhem. Just transform it, put it into Kensington, and um, touch of shopping, and make it. Yeah, yeah. shopping instead of yeah. all of the other stuff. Yeah, and tripping over some bloke who just needs the love of a good woman. And how's Mills and Boone doing? Sorry, Dave. How's Mills and Boone doing at the moment? Are they? I don't know. Actually, sorry, they haven't told me. <laughs> I think they're doing really well. I, th- I think they've, yeah, they've, modernized, they've modernized the output. They're not bodice rippers anymore. I think they're, they're yeah. indulging in a lot racier sort of um, uh, publishing, and I think they're doing well. And I've heard it's a fairly good uh, way for a, a budding author to, to cut their teeth. Not sure. I haven't had direct, direct experience myself. No, me neither, but I just wondered. They've, got a, good share of, they've got a good share of the pie, have they? Ninety-eight and a quarter. Well, they're, they're doing a, a new subgenre, which is in root vegetables. <laughs> Bit of a melting pot. Now that, that one, I could get my teeth into. Um, UK retails. Uh, Carolyn is talking about the, uh, the state of the economy. Retail sales. Uh, news just in fell 0.4% last month in the UK. A bigger fall than expected, people say. Uh, sales in the three months to March, however, were 2% higher than the last three months. The highest rate since July 2006, perhaps. A sign of consumer resilience. Uh, on the um, on the brave new virtual frontier, um, the Times is reporting Amazon UK um, sees no sign at all of a slowdown. The managing director of Amazon UK said today that he had yet to see any signs of an economic slowdown after the web retailer reported a 36% jump in its first quarter profits. Brian McBride, who took over at Amazon UK two years ago, said that although the high street was struggling, Amazon's customers were continuing to spend. And he added, we opened an 800,000 square foot fulfillment centre in Swansea last week and you wouldn't do that unless you have a lot of confidence. And um, in Publishers Weekly... They point out something rather interesting and perhaps a little bit sinister, much along the lines, actually, of that very good podcast we did a few weeks ago with Martin Daniels, when Martin said, watch out for Amazon, it is a slumbering giant that's about to awaken. Uh, Publishers Weekly mentioned, they say, with Amazon's growing power in book sales, it's understandable that publishers may be a bit anxious on learning that in Amazon's 10K filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the company lists amongst its many competitors, not just bookstores, but also publishers. Um, and O'Reilly blog, they say, it. O'Reilly, we have a motto, they're commenting on this, we have a motto, create more value than you capture. It's a wise motto, they say, for companies far bigger than we are to adopt. If you do that, you ensure a healthy ecosystem. If you capture more value than you create, watch out, because stagnation is on the way. Amazon has, they say, so far created huge value for the publishing ecosystem. Now, as they become more powerful, they need to be especially watchful that they don't irreparably damage an industry on which they too depend. So what do we think about this? Do we think that uh, convenience and discounters is preferable to physically browsing in a first-floor coffee shop? I, uh, I love Amazon. Unfortunately, I've sold out. <laughs> I, I, do, I do love to just go online and uh, 
say, right, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one, and just buy it. Mm-hmm. Certainly we do with... Um, You've got your one clip turned on, huh? Yeah, uh, and, and certainly with, with the set texts for uni, it's just so much easier to look on there. And particularly with their marketplace sellers, uh, they're always very good for English and, and Greek classics. Um, but yeah, anything and everything. I mean, my, my latest buy I'm planning is either the Babylon 5 box set or the X-Files box set. I can't quite decide. And, and nowhere but Amazon can you get it for 80 quid. So go out and buy now. So it's Amazon all the way for you? Yeah, it is. Well, that's a tough nut to crack. Um, I, I like both. I, I tend to, um, enjoy Amazon and, um, I also shop at the bookstores. Um, Amazon offers speed and selection, but, um, I love it, the indies. Um, there's a, a, an independent store here called Books and Books and they have author signings and have a, a great selection. Um, Barnes and Noble has the coffee shop and a lot of selection. Um, there's a little um, tiny bookstore even um, in North Carolina that I go to, and uh, they're a lot of fun. There's nothing like touching the books and being able to look at them and read the covers and stuff. So I- I'd say I'm a hybrid. Hmm. Yeah, it's not just a pie in the sky for you, is it? Okay, good, good. Uh, Carol, you, you, you support your local bookstore? Um, Everyone says they do. I mean, do you, to tell the truth? No. Because I'm an Amazon browser and buyer, but I'm also a library person. So I find what I want on Amazon, check to see if my library's got oh. it. If it's something like, you know, we've got, at the last count, something like 3,000 books in this house. We are nearly, nearly forbidden from buying books, but we still both do. Yeah. And uh, anything that stops us just going, oh, I'm going to have that. So you're the person who boosted Amazon's profits this quarter. Off. Yeah, you, you can't stop yourself getting this. Too high. The thing is, you see, the thing is, you see, there is a serious point here. I think that people are starting to to worry about a bit that that this this behemoth uh, called Amazon um, so far has has been fantastic and has done wonderful things for publishing. But as it gets bigger and bigger, and perhaps you know larger organisations do tend to move towards the monopolistic. I mean, is it? Um, is it actually going to act in our best interests or not? And if the price of having a big local, well, you know, virtually local convenient Amazon is that you no longer have your local bookstore, whose interest is that in, in, in the long term, Dave? Uh, well, I do patronise my local bookshop quite uh, well. I order books from them. I you could patronise them right now. Them regularly. Yes, I could. I could say... Um, nice, nice little bookstore. It's an excellent bookstore. Yes, well done. You have a lovely bookstore. Um, yeah, no, they're, they're great. And I'll, I'll tend to try and find a book in a shop, and then if I can't, I'll resort to Amazon. I, I don't like these big guys knocking everybody else off the tree. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, see, it's being born in the 60s that does it. I, <laughs> it, it it's something in, in the air at the time. It makes you kind of rebel against this stuff. These youngsters like Rick's, they've been sucked in and bought by the, the corporate giants. They don't know any better, bless them. Uh, so, you know, it's up to us to try and fly the flag. But, no, I, I do use them, and I, I do worry about the impact of, of multinationals. Richard, you've got a conscience, surely? Respond to what, to what Dave said. No, I can't be bothered. <laughs> he can have his views, I don't care. <laughs> it's easy for me because I work in a library. So, really, I, I don't do that much shopping because I have all the books I need. Uh, and, and then, you know, I just sit at work and I say, well, what books don't we have? We don't have this one. Well, I'll, I'll order it off Amazon. I don't need to leave my chair. <laughs> yeah, but don't they all smell, Rich? <laughs> what, what, the books? <laughs> the books from the libraries. Books from libraries always <laughs> smell. <laughs> That's because of what all the old people leave in them, their fingers. Did <laughs> you find the old finger? Somebody got too excited and slammed the book shut. I can't cope with this anymore. <laughs> Broke a finger off or something. <laughs> it's probably yeah, Yarg. Aside from um, Waterstones and W. H. Smith in, in Bracknell, uh, we've got uh, a plethora of uh, an absolute smorgasbord of um, charity bookshops. And uh, th- there are never any books in there because my boss literally spends his day picking up all the uh, all the books worth selling, and then he comes back and sells them on Amazon. So, uh, you know, he's, he's making a good profit from Amazon. That's good. I just want you to speak s- up on behalf of everybody who lives in the middle of a field, like what I do, that uh, Amazon really is easier than the uh, mobile library that comes around once a month 
or remembering to go to the library. It's convenience, and yes, it does worry me. And I'm going to plug my local bookstore, Landers, in Long Melford, because they support me as an author, and their mailing list is fantastic. And yes, I do like going in there and pouring my way through books, and I'll buy too many. It's simple. Well, you can save lots of bread online, but you do have to worry about those cookies gathering information on you. 97. Good. Good cookie one. Yes. Um, Very, very big news uh, this week. Um, Significant. Um, And bizarrely, actually, reported in a a very small way on the BBC website. Um, And I haven't seen it picked up anywhere else. Um, This is a momentous moment, actually, in, in the history of the development of new media. Rory Salan jones who's the BBC's technology correspondent, uh, wrote, I think, in, in his BBC blog, but um, the, the link will be in the show notes, as always. Uh, thanks to Ruby Tuesday for being our fantastic podcast officer. She does the show notes faithfully, come hail or, uh, or, or shine every week. And he writes this. It's easy to forget that as well as being an extraordinarily innovative firm, Google is also rapidly becoming Britain's biggest advertising business. The latest figures released on Thursday evening show how rapidly it is growing in the UK, earning, wait for it, earning $803 million in the first three months of this year, about 40% up on a year ago. Let's put that into context, says Rory. Last year, ITV's net advertising revenue was £1.5 billion. So, even if you just multiply Google's earnings uh, for the quarter by four and assume no further growth this year, Britain's biggest commercial television business, the original, quote, licence to print money, is about to be overtaken by an American upstart which only arrived in the UK in 2001. Um, this is uh, this is staggering news, actually. That television, which as he says has always been considered the ultimate advertising medium, the license to print money, is now going to become a secondary medium after Google and online advertising. Um, can we attribute all of this success to to Google and the internet, or maybe to the decline of values of television itself? I mean, I know talking myself personally when. You know, when I go out to lunch with uh, with people in the publishing business and the subject of television comes up, which it often does, it's not really a question of what did you see on television recently. It's a question of do you watch television anymore? And that's that's something new. That's a change. Um, Richard, how would um, ha- have your viewing habits changed at all in the past few years? Uh, well, I'm not sure if you can stomach this, but I literally um, only watch the the american um series the mm. pushing daisies the desperate housewives the the lost the 24 heroes Grey's anatomy er i i don't set out to watch anything else because it's all pap it, yeah. it's, it's all it's all a load of compost really um because i i'm i'm just looking for the stories I can get my teeth into and and, and that is the the american series that really they take themselves seriously enough to, to produce yeah. very good quality stuff. Good production yeah. values, good story. Yeah, and, and you know, they've got about 20 or so staff writers that are really you know, plugging the whole series through. And I find that that's a, a lot better than what we push out here in, in England and, and certainly what the Australians push out for, for their soaps. Um, so your, but, have your viewing habits actually changed? Yes, they have, because having left home, I, I don't have to sit through EastEnders or Coronation Street anymore. <laughs> so so I, I stay clear of the TV. We, we tape the, the stuff we want to watch, and then, then we go back to it when, when we're ready. But so we're all, now we're all... with, with, the, uh, with the BBC iPlayer and the ITV and yeah. Channel 4 doing all their, their bit, I mean, a, uh, NBC, CNBC, or all the American channels have been doing this for, for some time now. It's, yeah. it's just allowing people to watch the TV that they want whenever they want. Um, I, I think that's, that's the way to go, and, and that is the way it's going to go, because TV is going to end up being just the pap. It's going to be just all the celebrity this and the true life that. Uh, yeah. 
so, so Phil, I, I, I just don't don't tend to watch it anymore. So we're watching. Uh, we're busy watching. At least Richard is busy busy watching. You know, the cream of the cream of American television over here. What are Americans actually doing, Donna? I mean, are you watching less television these days, or what? Um, well, with TiVo, I probably watch more TV. Um, hmm. Ads always drive me bananas, so I skip through them, and and I don't have to waste my time watching the advertisements, which I think is why Google's doing so well. Um, the reason that Google is so wonderful for advertisers is you can really target um, people who are looking for a particular product. Mm. Um, for TV, um, uh, there's really a terrific selection of great TV out there. Right? Lost Heroes, uh, the, the John Adams series, uh, the Tudors, the Riches, um, really good stuff out there now. So I, I think we do watch probably more TV than we used to because of the TiVo and the ability to skip through the ads. So you're watching more television because because of the sort of dedicated nature of, um, of the, the machines you watch it on. You can watch what you want to, when you want to, and if necessary, you can skip through the ads. Exactly. Yeah. Some shows are so a- advertising intensive. I mean, I love American Idol. I know it's it's uh, kind of a cheesy show, but um, it, it's fun. And But it's all advertising. So it, the whole show is probably about 20 minutes if you skip through the ads, which mm. I gladly do. Well, you see, it's people like you, actually, um, who are destroying the advertising base because advertisers know that people are skipping through the ads. So, I mean, it's... it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why I think Showtime and HBO have the right idea, and I think that's going to be the way things yes. go in the future. Um, more paid um, programming um, with no advertising. We haven't got in, into that here. We haven't got into that in, in the UK, bizarrely. I mean, ITV... Uh, is an aggregation of you know what used to be a lot of independent um, companies. First of all, they became Granada, and then that really turned into ITV. Um, the number of creative people employed in the television business has, has been reduced a lot. It's much less regional than it used to be, and I just can't understand for the life of me why London hasn't got its own dedicated television station. And it's been tried a little bit in the past, but it hasn't done properly. Um, the audiences have declined, and particularly the quality of audiences has declined too. Advertisers don't just pay for numbers, they pay for people with available income, you know, um, and that's that's gone down as well. And all I can see that television is doing, I'm on my soapbox here, I'll shut up in a moment, is it, it, it still sees itself as the ultimate mass medium, so it's going more and more and more down market, you know, in an attempt to... Um, you know, to, to, to get more viewers. I think it's, it's going to end up with people who, you know, who haven't got anything else to do during the day, actually, just, just watching television. But, um, let, let, Dave, am I talking rubbish? I do sometimes. No, I, I don't think so. I, mean, I, I watch virtually no television at all, mm. mostly because it's rubbish and partly because I've got better things to do. But Isn't it's... that also because you can't get a signal where you are? Well, that could be that, yeah. <laughs> the cheese aerial doesn't pick up signals very well. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and the cheese television's hopeless. You know, it's it's terrible. It's no picture, no definition at all. But no, it, I think it, it is generally rubbish, isn't it? And uh, the sooner or later we'll have, as long as combined chavdom can plug themselves directly into chav into yeah. guy sports, yeah. you know, through a port in their head, yeah. um, then most of the population will be happy, and the government oh, yeah, will be able to do what they want, sport. you know, um, and they'll be away and. That's where we're going, isn't it? Sport everywhere. It depresses me so much. I could see a time, uh, Carolyn, when television, perhaps not so far off now, when television is just for those people who can't afford anything else. I think you're right. And I think that uh, I, like everybody else, uh, am very picky about what I watch now. Um, certainly don't. Uh, we record stuff. Like, for example, tonight we're recording Have I Got News For You because okay. it's funny, it's amusing, it's slightly intelligent. Um, you know, it's a good half-hour fillet. Uh, we try and pick the... Uh, this sounds really uh, so dull, but the, the costume drama, for example, on Channel 4, there was City of Vice, which was absolutely fascinating about the Fielding Brothers mm. and uh, how they how they work. Interesting stuff, but the rest of this, that, nah, forget it. I mean, I don't know what's on at the moment because nothing has appealed to me. Hmm. And well, this, I is, think this is a widespread feeling, isn't it? I mean, we're all pretty much yeah. agreed on this. So why don't they listen yeah. to us? Why don't why, you know? Why, I mean, why don't they reverse this appalling? We're the minority. Yeah, because they, they want. We're the minority, and of course, it goes back to the adage about a recession that the first thing that nose dives is uh, advertising revenue. Uh, and the second thing is uh, beer sales. <laughs> and that's when uh, 
no, seriously. <laughs> Um, I don't know what it does to burger sales, but I, if we've got a generation now who are growing up, so there's a percentage in the UK which must be tripled, quadrupled in the States of people whose family, all members of their family have never worked, then what are mm. they doing other than watching television? Yeah. So that's the majority appeal now. Yeah. It's not people who go out to work and then go home and turn on the television mm. because we don't want to. There's nothing there. Much rather go to a dinner party with some uh, unattractive men. Oh, no, attractive <laughs> men, isn't it? I can't remember now. It's been so long. It's all right, giggling over in Miami. <laughs> oh, well, I think that in a recession, you're going to see more people watching TV. They can't afford to go out as much. Um, mm. I think you're going to see um, uh, people uh, taking the cheap route, which is TV. Um, uh, when I get home from work, I love sitting in front of the TV. I, I have to confess that um, I, I like watching it. It makes me kind of uh, de-stress and think about something besides uh, discrimination cases. So um, it's an escape, and I think in a recession, people need an escape. Just, just have a bit of yog. That'll make you. That'll, that'll perk you up a bit. <laughs> Cheese wrapped in nettles will always perk you up a bit. Hit the spot. Yeah, it'll hit a spot. <laughs> children, honestly. <laughs> no, no, we don't let children play with the cheese. Fine. Uh, final thoughts, um, anybody? Um, um, I'm uh, tallying up the the uh, the food metaphor scores as you speak. You have five more seconds to get them in, chaps. Ooh, we we, we get another. Don't don't trifle with me. You know our meatballs are on the line here. It's um, you know. <laughs> It's all a matter of taste as to whether they really are digestible or not. Uh, you know, we, bringing up all my kippers right now. Final to spoon. air. Yeah, carry on. Good, good, good. Yes. Okay. Don't, don't. <laughs> go on, go on, Dave. If you've got one more, I can oh, see I was just going to, you know, don't hang your kippers out to dry too early. You know, smoke them. <laughs> a famous well, old butter food my metaphor. butt and call me a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> If I smoke them, do I get a million-pound deal with Penguin? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> Very likely. You, you could probably have Penguin steaks. Yeah. Oh, stop it. <laughs> Uh, last minute surge there from Dave Bartram. Okay, the final scores are, it's been very hard keeping track with all these uh, food metaphors, most of which are utterly disgusting. Um, Carolyn Sutar, 98 points this evening. Well done, Carolyn. Very, very creditable. Donna Ballman, 98 and a quarter. Been slightly mean there. Um, Dave Bartram, 98 and a half points. Very, very close to see. Neck and neck, basically. But the winner tonight was Richard Howes, who has 98 and three quarter points. Um, Richard Howes probably will be receiving... Un- unspecified amounts of yarg <laughs> in the post from, from Dave wouldn't like to be at home when that arrives but also as the main um, prize tonight he'll be getting a DIY male menopause kit from me <laughs> the mind boggles so there we go congratulations <laughs> to Richard House for winning our food metaphor contest tonight and thanks to Dave Bartram, Donna Ballman, and Carolyn Sutar, who joined us as our special guest. We've got lots of fantastic special guests booked for the next few weeks. Um, thank you to everybody t- for taking part tonight. Hope you had a good time. And why don't we do it all again next week? Night, night, everybody. Thank you, Peter. Good night. Good night, everybody. Night Say good night, Jim Bob. Bye bye, Jim Bob. Good night, Dad. Good night, Mary Ellen. Good night, young boy. <laughs> Well, that was the show, and this is the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers' Colony. The main website address is www.litopia.com. And we also have a microsite purely dedicated to our podcasts. The address is podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, just type podcast.litopia.com, and you'll find it. That's also where you'll find show notes and links referenced in this episode, all carefully compiled by our podcast officer for your benefit. How are you currently listening to this podcast? The best way is to subscribe to it using iTunes. iTunes is free software, and it works both on the Mac and the PC. Once you subscribe in this way, every show will be automatically downloaded for you the moment it's available. Full instructions on the Litopia website. And talking of iTunes, if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a good review on our iTunes page. We rely on word of mouth to promote the podcast and really would appreciate your help to tell people about us. 
on the website podcast.notopia.com, you'll find a neat little widget that you can easily add to your MySpace page, your blog, or your social network. Just click on the button for full instructions. It's easy to do. It looks cool, and it helps us too. We're constantly working to make the show and the website better and better. One new feature allows you to sign up to have our fulsome show notes delivered automatically to your mailbox, again, as soon as the show is released. Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you, and we'd be delighted to receive your comments and suggestions. There are several ways to do this. Choose whatever suits you. You can, for example, leave a comment on the show notes page, or you can use the handy feedback form, again, on the website. If you prefer, you can send us an email, and if you're feeling very adventurous, you can even record your thoughts as an MP3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at utopia.com. Remember, in addition to being available as podcasts, our shows are also streamed live over the internet as they're recorded. This means you can listen in to all our bloopers, and you can also make comments or post questions via the special live chat facility. You'll enjoy it. It's great fun. Full details on the website. Finally, if you appreciate what we're doing, then please do consider giving us some mild financial support to cover our web hosting and bandwidth costs. It only takes a moment to click on one of the buttons to make a donation, and it will help us keep going. This is Peter Cox, thanking you for listening, and looking forward to being back with you again soon. <laughs>